Good morning, good morning. So we are, after a five-week hiatus, back in the Gospel of Mark. I've actually taken the time to figure out <laughs> uh, the Mark sermons, one by one, and I, pl- I map them out, and I almost don't want to tell you when we're going to be done. <laughs> but Mark chapter 16, the resurrection, happens on Easter morning next year. <laughs> <clears throat> Amen. Amen. So there, there's actually a, a, a schedule now on the back, uh, on the bill, bulletin board there. And there are dates I already know that I had to fill in for myself. Those are in red. Otherwise, if you want to know what the sermon titles and texts are going to be until Easter of next year, there they are. No, no, I'm not, which is why I made the list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You've been to a few elder meetings with me. I, so it's so funny with that kind of thing. I, I, I'm not, and so that's why I had to sit down and do all of that, because otherwise I read the wrong books, let me just tell you. So we're back in Mark chapter 8. Uh, today I will be preaching verses 1 through 10, and then next week um, Jared is going to pick up in verse 11. So I will we'll be on vacation this week, but I will be here next Sunday. Uh, the classes will not be absent on Sunday, but we're going to go camping, so please pray for us. So our text today... <laughs> Is Mark chapter 8, verse 1 through 10, and I will just read that for us now. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from very far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people? with bread here in this desolate place. And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples and set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over. Seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went into the district of Dalmanutha. Dalmanutha. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much um, for your son. We thank you for sending him into this world to save us. We thank you, Lord God, that as we go about our lives... Uh, as, as we are encountered again and again by brokenness, by deserts, by anxieties, by fears, by lack and by want, that you are always what satisfies us. We pray, Lord God, that um, not only would we believe that, but that we would know that, that we would live that out in our everyday lives as parents, as children, as workers, as pa- uh, husbands and wives, that we would all know that the thing that satisfies in the wilderness is Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Now, I know you're wondering, is this, are you, are you having a deja vu moment? Having just read this story, are you thinking, is Mike confused? Is this chapter 6? <laughs> is he preaching the same sermon? I thought about that. See if anyone noticed. <laughs> the common way of dealing with this second miracle feast by many modern scholars is to focus a lot on the dissim- dissimilarities. It, it, it is distractingly shocking how much content is spent just 
discussing whether this second one actually occurred at all. Uh, the scholars, and, and, not, and now, not the faithful Bible commentators. There's plenty of faithful Bible commentators. But if you, if you guys are familiar at all with modern scholarship when it comes to the Bible, uh, these, these people who, you know, suddenly now, after thousands, a thousand plus years, we're all very confused about who wrote what and when they wrote it and what was going on and what was, where was their source. And everything that we were not confused about, we're suddenly very confused about as if this is high thinking. Criticism, it's called. And I criticize criticism with all the criticism in my heart. I hate it. <laughs> Nothing turns me into like a rabid fundamentalist like modern literary criticism. Anyway. These stories are different. Now, when I am done with this, I hope that everyone is able to, to say point blank exactly, oh, this, of course these are different stories. Of course he did this twice. We don't have to find a deep, there's no deep, deep secret theological reason as to why Jesus would perform the same miracle more than once. If, if, we've, if we've paid any attention to what the disciples are like, I'm surprised that he didn't do this miracle every day. Because they are that dull. So are the modern literary critics. <laughs> they seem, honestly, they, nothing ju justifies the disciples in my eyes like modern critics. Because they're just as dumbfounded by what Jesus is doing and why as, as the disciples were. It's, it's so funny that they mock the disciples, but they themselves are just as confused. They can't figure, why would he do this? Why would he do this? And, and, and anyway... I'm getting all worked up. Let's look at some differences, because these stories are different. Uh, one of the things about what Jesus did in all of his miracles is the different Gospels arrange them in different orders. That's because they don't care about chronology the way that modern people do. That's first and foremost. Secondly, it says at the end of the Gospel of John, 21 and 25, I think, if, if they had written down everything that Jesus did, the world could not contain the books. And... Jesus performed, he doesn't care about performing the same miracle over and over and over again. He doesn't care. He does not care that people notice that he performs miracles. What we're going to find out today, and, and what I found fascinating by this text, is I really, for the first time, found out why. Why does Jesus perform these miracles? And I was shocked, actually, what, that I had not thought of it before. But again, I'm a lot more like the disciples than I care to admit. Most of us are. But again... I get ahead of myself. Let's look at some differences between these stories. In chapter 6 is where the other miraculous feast occurs. Now, the ground of Jesus' compassion is that in that story, he says, I have compassion on this crowd, just like in this story. But in that story, it's because they are like a sheep who have no shepherd. His compassion comes from the fact that they are leaderless. So he provides the leadership they, they lack by teaching them. Now, in chapter 8, verse 2, the ground of Jesus' compassion is that the people have been so long without food. Oh, well, it's compassion. He has compassion on two crowds. They must be the same story. No, he has compassion on them for totally different reasons. He has compassion on what is the primarily the Israelite community in chapter 6 because they have no leader. He has compassion on these folks here because they've been with him for three days and they are actually hungry. They're very hungry. In chapter 6, verse 35 and 37, the dis disciples ask Jesus to dismiss the crowd, which has spent the greater part of, a, of one day with him in order that they may seek provisions in neighboring towns. It's the disciples who bring it to Jesus' 
attention and say, hey, we ought to do something for these guys because they've been sitting here all day long. But here, it's Jesus who's approaching the disciples. It's the exact opposite. On the second occasion, Jesus is thoroughly aware of the practical issues involved in dismissing the crowd without nourishment, and he takes the initiative in calling attention attention to the disciples. Unlike the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus has the disciples uh, seat the crowds, he seats them himself in this story. Right? These are interesting details. I'm, I'm just... I'm just going to list them here at the beginning so that we can understand these are completely different stories. In the feeding of the 5,000, the description of Jesus' prayer follows a Jewish custom. In in chapter 6, it says, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. And the word there is um, a different Greek word than what you find in chapter 8, verse 6. In chapter 8, verse 6, he employs the Gentile Christian form of blessing, Eucharist, which is what we call the Lord's Supper. So he gives thanks in chapter 6 in the traditional old-school Jewish way. In the new story today, he uses, they use the word, he calls it the Eucharist. He calls it the Lord's Supper. Now that alone, actually, without any other detailed difference, is enough for us to, to, to stop and think, what is Jesus telling us here? What is Mark telling us by this change of words? We're getting a little closer to the church. We're getting a little closer to this new Israel. We're getting a little closer to understanding that it's not just the Jews who benefit from Christ's coming into the world. Uh, Another interesting detail is that the word for fish is different. In the feeding of the 4,000, it is a diminutive in Greek, perhaps uh, rendered sardines. (laughs) So in in the other story, in chapter 6, it's a different fish. Now, again, what, what is this? Now, I'm a typological person, so I start to think. I actually spent way too much time this week trying to figure out why the two different... Uh, do you know why there's two different words? Because he served them two different fish. That's it. <laughs> it there's no deep significance there. Another interesting thing is the word for basket is different. Uh, it has often been pointed out that spirus, the word used for basket in this chapter is quite different from the kofonos, or traveling basket, used for the fragments in the former one. Now, and, and again, now here, typologically, I could find something. Okay, so in, in, in the first story, the Jews are filling their traveling bags full of the scraps. Okay, and, and in this story, he's serving them the Eucharist, and, and instead of a traveling bag, they just fill regular baskets, the baskets you would take home. So in this crowd is more established. This crowd is firmer. This crowd isn't out wandering around. They're going to settle down here in the wilderness, and they're going to eat out of these baskets for a few days. The difference in vocabulary, the bag, the fish, the giving of thanks, all point to two different stories. As as for the composition of the multitude, it has been common since the time of Augustine, uh, which is a pretty long time, to assign the first feeding to the nourishment of Israel and the second to the Gentiles. It's not quite as cut and dry as that, though. There can be no doubt that uh, of the Gentile association with, with chapter 6, 7, and 8. Jesus is in the Decapolis. He, he's uh, healing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. He's out there amongst the Gentiles doing things. So here, though, uh, people like to assume, they often assume wrongly, that in, in one side of the lake, one side of the sea, it's all Jews, and in the other side of the sea, it's all Gentiles. And that's actually not true. On, on the side of the Decapolis, it's a mixed multitude. 
It's a lot more like what the church is going to end up being. There are some Jews, but there are some Gentiles. There's not one group that uh, supersedes the other. In view of the mixed population of the area, it is probable that both Jews and Gentiles sat down together in meal fellowship on this occasion, which is breaking the law. The law as the Pharisees understood it. Because remember, their whole thing is, I can't eat next to a Gentile because they're dirty, filthy little mudbloods. I can't be near them. But what (laughs) Jesus is like, no, he takes this whole crowd, he sits them down, and he feeds them, and he doesn't care Jew or Gentile. Because nowhere in the Old Testament does it actually say you're not supposed to eat with a Gentile. The journey to the Gentiles in Mark chapter 7, verse 2, 4 through 8, 9, has shown that they are neither beyond the reach of salvation for Jesus Christ. He has gone into their territory. He has left what is considered Israel, he has gone into the land of the Gentiles, and he doesn't mind mixing with them, he doesn't mind saving them, because what he's, what he's shown by his going there is how interested, how alive their faith is, how responsive they are to him. And, and so what, what do we know? Where there is faith, he will do great things. If people are responsive to him, he's even more responsive to them. And this is what he's showing. Right? There's things he couldn't do in his own hometown because the people didn't believe to him believe in him. But here he is in the Decapolis and he has this crowd following him around and he, they are responding to him and so he is responding to that faith. So here Christ is deepening the revelation. He is, he is drawing closer to Passion Week, which is coming and he institutes the Eucharist or Lord's Supper. Uh, that's Okay, hold on. So he's drawing closer to the Passion Week. And in the Passion Week there are certain things that we know. And so what he's doing is he's, he's revealing a little more and a little more and a little more about what he's going to reveal in the Passion Week. Because in that week, he institutes the Eucharist. He forms a new body, a new loaf. The new Israel is the body of Christ who commemorates the new assembly with a new feast. So he's just prepping everybody. Now, there is a lot to be learned about just the way he's doing this. He doesn't go from zero to 60 all in one go. He, he gives a little bit, and he gives a little bit, and he gets a little bit, and he gives a little bit, and, and he's kind of working them up to where he in, teaches them about this new feast, this new feast of which the whole church is going to now sit around. And, and this new church isn't just going to be Jews. It's going to be everybody. Because what does he want? He wants them to go out and baptize the nations, teaching them everything that he has commanded. And what, uh, what's the table that the, this new body, this new body of believers, this new nation of Israel, what, what table do they gather around? And so you see halfway through the gospel of Mark, what we see is that Jesus is prepping them. He's halfway towards his goal. And so here he's revealing a great deal more than he has revealed in the past. It's becoming clearer. It's becoming clearer. But not for the disciples. Not for the disciples. The dullness of the disciples is one reason that Jesus is going for a repeat performance. In in chapter 6, verse 52, in chapter 7, verse 18, in a moment here in chapter 8, verse 21, the disciples are confronted. They're asked, what is wrong with you? Why don't you believe? What is the matter with you? What else do I have to do, Jesus is saying. The dullness of the disciples is coming into sharp focus, leading up to the big reveal of Jesus' identity at the end of chapter 8. Now, 
What I love is the biographical elements of this. Because where did Mark get all of his information? Peter. And what does Peter... <laughs> he, Peter teaches something in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, that he knew all too well. I imagine when he wrote this particular verse, he was smiling quite broadly. This is what he says. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. So Peter, by the end of his life, is dealing with disciples who, are, who seem to listen but don't seem to get it. And Peter smirks on his face. He's like, oh, man, if you guys only knew, if you had any idea. And so he imitates in his ministry the thing that Jesus did in his ministry. Because at no point in this story is Jesus irritated. He does not start throwing loaves at his disciples. He does not yell at them. He doesn't say anything that is rude, anything that is mean. He does not get frustrated at all. Because he knows. You don't need to tell him what's in man. He knows what's in man. And here these disciples are, and they love him, and he knows that they love him, but he knows that it's difficult to understand what he is doing. That is a lesson for all of us. As long as he is in his body, he's resurrected now, so Jesus is going to be in his body for a while. As long as he is in his body, he does not mind reminding us of the things that we already know. Right? But what do we want? We want new. Give me something new. Give me something more. And Peter, like Jesus, like, no, no, hold on. Let's go over something you already have, right? This is what I love about um, when, when we have a big holiday coming like Christmas. It's always, it's always funny to me that we, we take a bunch of the older toys and we put them in a box and we get rid of some, but then some we store in the garage, right? And then once they've gotten sick of all the new Christmas toys, I go and get this box out of the garage and I bring it in the house and it's like Christmas all over again. Because they're receiving those things back from the dead. I didn't, right? Because a child's memory is very short. I forgot about this. <gasps> and they, they're so excited about this figure that's lo it's lost an arm. They don't know where the gun is, but it's back. The thing that we need, the thing that most of us need, because in this, in this community right here, we don't get a lot of people just walking in off the street. Right? People like that, you've got to sit down, and there's a lot of new things to tell them. And it's very overwhelming. It's a lot of information. Woof, man, where do, you, where do I begin? Do I begin in Genesis? Do I begin with the Gospel of Matthew? How do you start with this guy? People like us, the majority of us, what we need is to sit down, and what we need is somebody to tell us the thing we already know. Again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. <laughs> as long as he's in the body, he, it's good for us, and it's no problem for him. That's how Paul puts it. It's good for you, and it doesn't bother me at all to repeat myself. Because the thing that we all desperately need is to be reminded of what we already know. And the people of God have always been this way. Right? What, <laughs> the people in, coming out of the Red Sea. Oh, oh where are we going to get water? Uh, didn't you just see him, like, darken the sun and turn a, a river into blood and, like, kill firstborn children without even doing anything? I would not be worried about water. I'd be worried about complaining about not having water. But how quick, I mean, like, the, and the, they are like the disciples. Look at those people. My goodness. My goodness. Uh, hello. 
Moses is going to hit a, a rock with a stick, you guys. It's that easy for God. Haven't you guys been paying attention? And that's how we act when we read the stories, isn't it? The disciples, we're, we're sitting here, we're like, guys, seriously, you're going to ask them where you got bread? In the daily reading for this, I actually read chapter 6 and 8 in this reading challenge that I'm doing on the same day, and I was like, man, those guys really seem like idiots. Now, what it doesn't tell us is how, long, how much time has actually passed between them. So they look like bigger morons than usual, simply because it's like, dude, I just read that two chapters ago. Now, those same people, us, sit down, and we are there at the table, and we're talking to wifey about how we're going to pay for X, Y, or Z, and we don't know where the money is going to come from. You know, should we tithe this month? I don't know. We got the car. We got to fix the car. So-and-so has got to play sports. You know, we want them to have, you know, have it all. How often are we the same people who Jesus just needs to sit us down and say, listen, listen, there's no new revelation, right? This is what I love about the Protestant church. There is no new revelation. There's just this same book that generation after generation after generation after generation, we have to try to figure out. And it's amazing to me how little of it we actually come to understand in a single generation. Because, yeah, please, Jesus, don't give me more books in the Bible. I'm having a difficult enough time understanding the ones you gave me. I'm having a difficult enough time living it out. And that's what I love about all of us, because we're always exposed when we read the Bible, whether we're looking at the, the, the Israelites in the desert or the disciples, with our own stubbornness. How often have we been sitting there and there has been a miracle that's occurred, there has been some deliverance that has occurred that's identical to the situation we're in, but we just don't remember. Later we remember. Yeah, you know, it's funny how God delivered us financially that time and that time and that time, but man, what are we going to do now? <laughs> it, it, it's, uh, I, I've had several kids go to the ER Everyone has all their eyeballs, all their limbs. Everyone is fine. Nobody has become, you know, disabled. But every time it happens, every time it happens, uh, right? My mind goes, as a parent, my mind goes blank. I don't know what we're going to do. How is this ever going to be okay? How is life ever going to be normal? Because that, that's what our lives are like. We turn the corner and we, we, we thought we were on, right? Blessed Street, we thought we were on Happy Street, we thought we were on Easy Street, and we turn the corner and we're in a wilderness. And that's what this story is about. The the whole point of the story is in verse 4, the disciples, the disciples who have seen what already, say this. Who is going to feed all these people? Who's going to feed all these people in the wilderness? Jesus is just standing there like, Okay, here we go. Here we go again. Now, what I like is that what Jesus was going to do was already on Jesus' mind. He, he's not doing this for the disciples. He's not. But before we move on into some more depth of this text, let me just say that the word, how are they going to feed all of these people? It says in verse 4. But the word should be satisfy. Right? And that's an even deeper issue than food. The word that they use is how, who can satisfy all these people in this desolate place. And that's what this story is about. This is why he, Jesus needs to do it again. This is why Mark needed to, to write it again. 
right? It's not, you don't need to have a PhD from Oxford to figure out why this miracle is in here twice. People are hard-hearted. And what what has he been dealing with again and again and again? He's opening ears and he's giving the ability to speak and he's giving the ability to see because man is deaf, dumb, and blind. Man's deaf, dumb, and blind. We get to a new wilderness and we think the same thing. How is God going to satisfy us in this new wilderness? What is truly fascinating about this is this word satisfy. So just just keep that in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to it in a minute. Like all stubborn disciples, Jesus isn't yet weary of teaching them about grace. That's what this story is about. He's not tired of it. He hasn't run out. He understands man, and no one needs to tell him what's in man, even his own followers. They need the lesson, and you know what he's going to do because he has compassion for people? He's going to teach them. He'll show them again. Because he, he, this is why we get into why he does miracles. Do you know why he performs this miracle when it really comes down to it? Why does he make a few loaves and a few fish into a feast? Because there are hungry people. Jesus at no point sits down and is like, you know my grand strategy for taking over the world is to make a bunch of flashy miracles. What, what, he, right? he doesn't go around Israel saying, bring out all your dead so I can resurrect them. Bring out all the hungry so I can feed them. No, he, he's, he's walking along and he meets a hungry person and so he feeds them. He meets a broken person so he fixes them. And all of his miracles, it has nothing to do with this big, grandiose show. It's about the individuals and, and the compassion that he has for them. And that word compassion is, there's a couple of ways to understand it. One of them is to take someone else's circumstances and make them your own. So if my buddy is, uh, owes someone 100 bucks, he's down 100 bucks. I take 100 bucks and I pay the 100 bucks on his behalf. I, I'm now missing 100 bucks. So I've taken his status and I've given it to myself. An- another way of understanding this word compassion that Jesus has um, is to be moved in one's bowels. <laughs> no, no, not like you need a doctor. Okay, It's a very strange phrase to me, to be moved in one's bowels. Nobody talks like that. If you did talk like that, you would see a funny look on my face because that's a weird thing to say. But we understand things very differently now because we understand the inside of our bodies better than people in this, at this time did. So when we talk about somebody having a lot of heart, what do we mean by that? Well, we mean what they meant by, by saying their bowels. Because there actually are organs in your body that have as many um, electrical wires. I don't, I'm sorry. I'm not Eric. I don't know how to explain these things as well. You have organs in your body that actually are, have as, there's as much activity, electromag, electroactivity going on down there as in your head. They call it your second brain down in your, in your guts. I forget which one it is. I think it's the kidneys. And so when you come to find out this, right, they're now finding out, well, every, everything that's going on in your body isn't going on in your brain. It's going on in your bowels. And this is, have you ever, right, we have a phrase, gut feeling. Did you ever wonder where that came from? Well, it's a very old idea. People have a gut feeling. And when you had compassion, they were talking about people being moved in what they considered the area in, in their body that, that we call heart. Right? It was a little farther south than it is for modern people. 
one's intense inner feelings should always lead to outward compassionate acts of mercy and kindness. This is where my definition of compassion comes from. When you feel this, this, this feeling in your heart, in your bowels, when you're moved, when you feel emotional about someone's circumstances, so emotional that you can't not act, right? All the time we hear things about people and it sounds terrible and you just feel sad for them. But when it turns into compassion is when you do something. It's when you do something. And, and Jesus is always compelled, not by proving that he's the Messiah by doing miracles. He is moved by compassion. His compassion is real. He doesn't just have feelings about people's brokenness and hunger. He has actions. His feelings lead immediately to doing something about it. He's got hungry people on his hands, and he doesn't want them to be hungry. He knows, what the, he knows that they're suffering, and he wants the suffering to end. The fact that a miracle occurs, the fact that everybody else wants to make a big deal out of it, is not on his mind. It's not on his mind. Now, this particular group in verse 1 had a very special claim on his gracious provision. In that they did not merely seek food for food's sake. Now, in John chapter 6, Jesus has a very different crowd in that, that section. And this is what it says there. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were hanging out with Jesus, and it was like going to Old Country Buffet, and they're hungry again, and so they want to go back to Old Country Buffet. There are some people who are just like, man, that was a lot of really good bread. I think I'm going to follow that guy around because he's got a lot of really good bread. This particular group, though, have been with him for three days. Think about that. There is no crowd in, at, at all in the Gospel of Mark like this crowd. Everywhere else, what, the crowd is preventing him from eating. The crowd can't let him get out the door. The crowd prevents him from doing this, and the crowd prevents him from doing that. And the crowd wants miracles, 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 miracles. Nobody in this crowd says, hey, how about you just feed us all? Because that's not why they're there. They're not worried about what they're going to eat. They're not worried about how many days they've been out in the wilderness, because they are, in fact, in a very desolate place. There is nowhere to get food. There is no town. Like the other story, there were towns they could send them into. This story, there's not even a town to send them to. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31 through 33. This describes this crowd. Therefore, do not be anxious. It's amazing how often that word is coming out today. Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father's Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. For three days, the same amount of days that Jesus is in the ground, just saying, for three days this crowd has been following him, and they don't want just mere food. They're listening to what he is teaching. They're listening to what he is preaching. They're watching what he's doing. They want him. They want him. And, and, and because of that, because of that, Jesus is like, you know, you're not here just for miracles. You're not here just to get a, a, a free lunch, but I'm going to give you a free lunch. He's doing exactly what God always teaches. Follow me and I will take care of you. Don't think about your stomach. Think about the words that are coming out of my mouth. Think about your character. Think about yes and no. Think about law or breaking the law. Think about higher things. Think about God in his heaven and what that means that he is king. Think about that. Don't think about where you're going to get some bread from. I've got that. 
The crowd's hunger to know and to do God's will had kept them from eating. For such people, Jesus would work a miracle and give them the food that they had not sought for themselves. I think C.S. Lewis says this somewhere. But he says, if you, if you pursue earth, if you pursue the things of this earth, you get neither the things of this earth or heaven. You pursue heaven and you get both. Right? And that, what does Jesus say elsewhere? Don't let your treasure be here. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. Just follow me. Right? But, uh, you know, how often are we this crowd? This crowd is just like, hey, I'm, I'm with Jesus because Jesus is where it's at. And they're not worried about anything. How often could we describe ourselves as that? We're the crowd that follows Jesus and we don't care about where anything comes from? Sorry. It's not me, right? I love Costco. You know why I like Costco? Because I never run out of anything when I buy there, as long as I have the money, right? <laughs> Who needs Jesus when you have Costco? Who needs Jesus, right? I, I love how bad we are at understanding ourselves in this area. Jesus, yeah, yeah, I need Jesus. You know, I, I follow Jesus. I'm, a, I'm, I'm the pastor of this church. Now, uh, I'm hungry, so I'm going to go to Costco and buy like five times more food than I could ever actually eat. But watch me, I'll probably eat all of it. Right? We're, we're surrounded by what? What do we ever think we're lacking? I, I wish we weekly had a contest where some, everybody came in here and we had the uh, first world problem of the week contest to see who can outdo one another with our first world problems. This morning I accidentally sprayed cologne in my eye. And I thought, okay, not only does that hurt, actually, I thought the glasses would protect me but it was kind of an odd angle. But I thought, if there is a first world problem, it's my burning eye right now from the cologne I'm trying to like impress everybody with. Now, how often are we, do things like that happen to us, right? And you know the first thought? My first thought was not how funny this story is going to be. That was like an hour later in the car. My first thought was like, why is, you know, why is this day starting off so bad? Why do I have so many problems? I'm hungry. I've got cologne in my eye. I'm not sure if the prayer meeting schedule thing was done. And, 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 and right, I'm worried. I'm worried about all kinds of things. And then I'm sitting there and I'm eating these glorious things my wife makes. It's, she puts ham in a muffin tin and puts an egg in it. If you've never tried it, try it. And, I, and I'm in a hurry, so I just sit down and I'm eating two of them. And I didn't even say Grace. So how many of you have a day like that? I know that I'm not alone. I know that I'm standing up here in front of everyone admitting that I have such a day. But this is what this whole story is about. We are going down our merry way, and we turn a corner into a wilderness, and the first thing we ask is, who, what are we going to do? Who's going to take care of us? Who's going to get this cologne out of my eye? Well, we have eye drops for that, too. I mean, really, seriously, how much do, suffering do we really have? <laughs> the dullness of the disciples, I see, I, I just, I recognize it all too well. I recognize it all too well. It's not that they don't believe in him. It's that they are absolutely, completely baffled by what he's doing. In the next story after this in Mark, it, there are Pharisees there begging for a sign. Jared's going to deal with that. What I like about the disciples is, you know, to cut them some slack here, they, they aren't begging for signs. 
They're not begging for signs. They're not like, hey, Jesus, how about you actually show us who you really are and do this thing? They're not assuming to ask him things like that because they have more respect for him than that. But, but again and again and again, the things that Jesus does, why he does them is totally, they just don't get it. I don't, you're going in this direction and that direction. You're saying this, you're saying that. It's hard to keep up. I'm, I'm trying to keep up. I'm keeping up. But boom, three days into it, how, how, how happy do you think these three are? Or, or these uh, disciples are after the three days of this crowd following them around. And they're out and they're a little hungry. And they're a little worried that maybe they're going to have to share their food with someone. They're, how frustrated do you think they really are? And there are lots of things they're not doing, but, but they, they've totally forgotten Jesus. They, nobody, they, they, how are you going? Who, who could satisfy? Who could satisfy this crowd in this wilderness? And, and if they're going to ask that question, it's because we all ask this question. We all ask this question. They know what Jesus can do. So do you. So do you. The power is something that is mysterious, but in, in an established fact at this point in the story. What I think baffles the disciples more is Christ's reasoning and his timing. Right? Because that's what, what, when, it, when it comes down to it, we don't hate him. We don't dislike him. We don't dishonor him. We don't say, hey, you know, God, if you really loved me, my car would be bigger. I don't think people in here tend to say things like that. But we're baffled by his reasoning and his timing. Why would you, good God, do this thing? Why, good God, would you do this thing? Why are we here? What are we going to do? It's, we forget him like that. We forget him in a flash, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, years ago, I just imagine if it happened now. I was driving my car and I hit a pothole and I got two flat tires on the same side of the car. And I remember getting out and throwing things out of my trunk, just like in, just, I was not a believer at the time. I'm just like hurling things into the bushes. And, you know, I imagine, I don't think I would, um, I don't think I'd react much different at this point, right? Two flat tires on the same side. Who thought that plan up? Oh. (laughs) And how often are you caught just like that? Boom, right? Just left field, something happens. You're like, isn't there a God? Isn't he good? What happened? Who thought this up? (laughs) And this is what we're like. Right? Why is this story in the... Why does he repeat it? It's because... Please, repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Because I can preach this all right now, and I can leave out of this parking lot and back into somebody on accident and be like, isn't there a God who thought this up? Because we forget like that. I don't need some new, fresh revelation. Thank goodness that he is always working on me, always revealing more as I diligently search him. But really what I need is to take what I already know and really believe it with my whole heart, nonstop all the time. Eh, but we've heard it before, right? I mean, really? He's going to preach all the way through the end of Mark? I mean, we kind of covered half of it now. What else is there? I mean, Jesus is good. We're not. All right, let's move on. And this is, this is what plays upon our hearts day in and day out. The failure to learn from the second miracle is the strongest possible confirmation of the truth of the statement. 
that the first miracle had left no impression on them, right? In, in the first story, it said they, they, were, they didn't understand about the loaves. Later in chapter 8, it's going to say they still don't understand about the loaves. Jesus is going to say, you didn't understand the first time I did it, you didn't understand the second time. That alone is proof enough why he did it twice. There is still a puzzle, it is true, but it, it becomes now the puzzle as to the reason for their continu- continual failure to understand that the scarceness of their own resources was irrelevant. The circumstances, trying as they are, difficult as they may seem, are irrelevant. Now try to preach that to yourself. <laughs> well, this seems impossible, right? And how would you like it if your spouse is there like, well, it doesn't really matter, right? That conversation would go really well, I'm sure. But stop and think about it. There's an earthquake right now, and the parking lot opens, and all of our cars are swallowed. What's going to happen? Right? Think of anything that happened. Anything that could possibly happen to us. Whose hands are we always in? Who is always there in our midst, willing to take something small, like a loaf of bread, and feed 4,000 people with it? And how often throughout the history of, of the church, the history of the Bible, all redemptive history, is man constantly confronted by this? What, how is he going to get us out of this? At the Red Sea, they asked. How's it going to get us out of this? Right? When they're going into the land, they're looking at China. They're like, how's it going to get us out of this? And on and on and on. And it's like, you're going you're to send a Savior who's perfect. How are you going to do that? It's like, you know, this is, there's been all, every time a woman has a baby, that's because there's a man involved. And I'm going to do it once when there's no man involved, and nobody's going to see that coming. And then yet, we still think that he can't do anything. Because on one level, when you really think about it, right, once you make a virgin pregnant with a savior, he, I mean, it's the ball game. You're like, okay, well, I'm never going to worry about anything ever again, right? If he can do that, he can do whatever he wants. But it's not what we're like. It's not what we're like. And so We get to Mark chapter 8, verse 8 and 10. This is what it says. And they ate and were satisfied. Who satisfies us in the wilderness? In any wilderness. Who is the one who satisfies people in a wilderness? Now, whether it's miscarriages, whether it's marital problems, whether it's financial problems, whether it's the fact that you just rear-ended somebody for the third time in, a thir- in, the, in three months, you name the problem. I know, Molly, that's a bad one. I hope it's not you. Name it. Name a problem. You come to me and you tell me a problem. You tell me how he can't fix it. Have that conversation in your car on the way home. You kids, try to think of something God can't fix. A person he can't save. A natural law that he can't just be like, forget about it. What can't he do? And who does he love? Who did he send? That son, that superman of a son. Who did he send him to save you. Trust him. Believe. Turn to him. Look to him. <laughs> and you're right. Are we going to do it perfect? We know we're not, but we know he is. We know he will. Right? Yeah. Today you turn, you'd be like, oh, I did it. I turned to him. I turned to him right when I needed him, and he was there. The next day you don't. 
Next day you do. Next day you don't. Next day you do. You know what? <laughs> the circumstances don't matter. It's him that matters. What he's capable of. What he's willing to do. How far he's willing to go. Who satisfies in a wilderness? That's the question. Who? And, and just ask yourself that. Whenever you guys come up with a difficulty, whenever there's a problem, just somebody stop and just be like, hey, listen, I'm going to say the reasonable thing here. Who can satisfy a crowd in a wilderness? Jesus Christ is his name. He is the one that satisfies. If, if, if we just grab hold of it with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength, and he will come here every week, right? Every week. Every week we come through a wilderness to get into this door. Now, it doesn't seem like it again, the first world problems, but we are in a real spiritual wilderness, are we not? This nation the nature of the church in the United States, our families, the, the, what's out there that's at work against us. It's a spiritual wilderness to get into the door every time. And what do we find here every time? A loaf that, one loaf broken into enough to feed the masses. And, and he, right, this is the, the same feast story that he didn't mind doing twice in the Gospel of Mark. He does it again and again and again and again because he loves us. And his compassion for us is something that we can never understand. We can just feast on it. Amen. Father God, we thank you so much for your son who came into this world to save us from ourselves, from Satan, from sin, from death. And we pray, Lord God, that as we contemplate what that really means, that it would shape our expectations, that it would shape our faith, that it would shape our hearts and our very lives. We thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.